This is Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies, but sometimes we really just like to keep it shallow. I'm your host, Kate. I'm Megan. Get ready for all the spoilers. What'd you think of the title of this movie? I had that as a question, too, because I felt there were, to me, at least three different interpretations of whose house his house is. I thought that it could have been Bull's house, could also have been the Opeth, the ghost's house, but Mm -hmm. also broader than that, it's maybe the United Kingdom government's house. (laughs) I was thinking that too. Yeah. We are talking about the movie His House, a truly terrifying ghost story, but the ghosts do seem to come second in this one. BBC film takes place centered around some South Sudan refugees, and this was a tough one to sit through. Great movie, but tough to watch. This is probably the best rated, hardest to watch movie that we've ever done. (laughs) And neither of us were really looking forward to watching it for this podcast, but I am glad we're covering it. Me too. It is an incredibly well done movie. It's very, very powerful. I think it does social horror as well as true horror really well. I was watching it in prep for this episode and I told Mike that I was not enjoying it and he was like oh is it really bad and I was like no it's just tough it is a tough movie to stomach for a lot of reasons and and it's scary they somehow made a genuinely scary but very socially incisive movie This movie has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of a nice break from the garbage we've been watching this season. 13 Ghosts, Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. (laughs) And speaking of Rotten Tomatoes, Kate and I are trying to get Rotten Tomatoes certified. So one of the requirements is that we have 200, 200 Apple podcast ratings. Take a quick break. Please go give us a quick rating and help us get closer to our goal of being part of this tomato meter. Really small cast, but everyone's really good. Yes. We had Wunmi Mosaku and Sope Dirisu as our two main leads. And almost just above a cameo, but a supporting role from Matt Smith, who's a very well-known British actor. Yeah, I think he plays... I think it's Prince Philip Mm -hmm. in season one and two of The Crown. I thought he was really great in that. That's about all I've seen him in, though. Yeah, he was Doctor Who for a couple seasons. That's right. He was most recently in House of the Dragon on HBO. So he's had a long career. I think it was really great that there were only a few people in this cast because it makes it feel really claustrophobic. It's really just the two of them. And then you've got this really well-known British actor who's their caseworker. It felt really apt. Oh yeah, here's the face of England (laughs) is your only connection to the outside world. Not only claustrophobic, but also isolating 
They were two fish out of water. There was nobody else in the cast who really helped them. Very, very few instances of them being helped. They just felt very alone as characters as well as cast members. I thought it was pretty amazing that this was director Remy Week's first film. It's so astounding that he adapted a a book and just totally knocked it out of the park (laughs) for his first go around. Yeah, I didn't see much else from him. I didn't recognize any of his other work, but I thought this was fantastic. And I'm hoping we get to see more from this guy, especially in the horror community. So I don't know, maybe we should jump in, get a quick summary and start talking through some of these scary moments in this very scary movie. Yes. The film centers on Bol and Rial, a married couple who are South Sudanese refugees. They have fleed South Sudan um, to come to London. They made the incredibly dangerous journey um, via boat with where we learn that their daughter fell overboard along with many other people and drowned en route to the United Kingdom. Once in the UK, they are granted conditional asylum and placed in refugee tenement housing in the worst possible housing that you can imagine and incredibly strict guidelines around what they can and cannot do or risk being deported back to Sudan and losing their refugee status. We see in the movie two very opposing approaches to this immigration process. Bowl, he wants to assimilate. He wants to fly under the radar. He wants to become a citizen and cut off and move on from the past And Rial, his wife, does not want to move on from the past. She wants to hold on to their roots and their culture and also continue mourning the loss of their daughter. And the movie progresses through, as you can imagine, just terrible racism and refugee issues that they have to face. On top of that, their house is haunted. <laughs> their house is haunted by the ghost of the daughter that they lost, that they see through the walls and throughout the house, and then eventually by an evil force known as an apeth in their culture as well, who's come to collect on a debt that they owe. And I will leave it there. I think we're going to get into some more of the details and the twist ending as we talk about the plot some more. It's a lot of movie. It's really emotionally heavy, but somehow accomplished in a very brisk 90 minutes. Yes, the pacing in this movie is not something to be afraid of. It's fantastic. But going off of your summary, this story kicks off with one of the scariest ideas I can only imagine having to deal with and that's having to seek asylum that's a real scary moment I think we open up pretty early seeing that this family has fled the country by motorboat across the ocean Kate how many movies have we seen where somebody is tossed overboard and trying to get back to civilization right there's 
Castaway, that Robert Redford movie. I think it is All is Lost. These are some great films that kind of cover that journey across the ocean, right, to survival. It's a million times scarier in this movie. It is. It's so frightening. I mean, it's a quick cut to them on this boat that is just exposed to the elements. It's nighttime. It's dark. It's storming. This boat is crammed full of people and they're just sitting. They're not wearing life vests. They're not strapped into anything. It's just so gut-wrenching and that's how we start the movie. (laughs) It just drops you right in to this horrifying prospect of what that kind of fleeing looks like. Not even to mention having to just leave your home country, leaving literally everything that you know because anything else just has to be better than what you're experiencing in your home country. In our circumstance, it's unfathomable, right? Right. And I think what we see here in the States is a lot of trekking across land and desert to get to the United States and cross that border. In the UK, they have to cross the ocean. They have to cross a big body of water. And it's it's sort of the same thing. It's like a water desert. And then they end up in the UK asylum process, which is a whole other <laughs> topic of rot with fear. I can't imagine having to go through this. The processing center that they have to go through just felt so casually cruel. Just like it didn't even affect these people that they were dealing with refugees who were fleeing a civil war. The massive influx of Sudanese people into the UK is a real thing. There is a Sudanese diaspora um, in the United Kingdom for several reasons. One of them is because of British imperialism into Africa means that Sudan, in addition to smaller local languages, a primary language spoken in Sudan is English. And so when people want to leave Sudan and go to a European country, going to the United Kingdom makes sense because there is that already existing British culture and influence in Sudan. And so this is kind of a circular process, right, where you get some Sudanese people immigrating to or eventually fleeing to the UK. And then once a diaspora has been started, then more people will continue going to the United Kingdom. I didn't get specific numbers on how many Sudanese refugees are in the UK, but there is a large number of immigrants who live in the UK. There are 9.6 million people who live in the UK who were just born abroad versus 6 million foreign nationals who live in the UK. So foreign national would be more what we think of in the US as someone who is an immigrant and under that foreign national category would include refugee or asylum seekers. Right. Okay. So it's all kind of bucketed together in these stats. Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you on the way they're treated. They're so, the British asylum committee or I don't know what the what their name is what they're called but they're so blasé and rude about the situation that these people are in you know they're trying to escape death and violence and you don't get a sense that these people 
quite understand it or they are just so used to it that they don't care anymore. And I don't know what's worse, Kate. (laughs) This movie breaks my heart over and over and over again. I mean, because one of them leans to the other and says their daughter died on the journey over here. And they're just like, huh. And then they look Mm -hmm. at their paper and they go, oh, congratulations. We're giving you a house. They just don't even care. Yeah. It's been literally three weeks since she died and they don't they don't care. The rules that this couple has to follow after they're granted bail from detention. Insane. So they're going to be granted 74 pounds a week to live on. This barely covers a grocery bill. They can't work to supplement that. So they're kind of stuck. That's what they get. They're given this home, which we'll get to because the home is a topic uh, all on its own. And there's just so many stupid rules, Kate. They can't have friends. They can't play games. They can't have candles. They can't have balls to play with. It's just bizarre. I think I don't know how accurate that last one is. No, they say something like no games, no games with balls, no balls. Like, I think it might be kind of like a joke, but it's getting across the idea that they're being really asinine about this and you really don't have agency when you're in the asylum process. They are so condescending to them. The grocery cost of living just blows my mind. They get 74 pounds a week, which is nothing for two people. And when they're dropped off at this house, which like Megan said, we'll get to the house. The house is a disaster. And then they're just told, oh, well, you can go buy the stuff you need to fix this place up. Yeah. How? On what money? What are you talking about? Oh, and that was such a sad moment when they get off the, I guess it's like a tram or bus or something. And their belongings are in garbage bags and they're just tossed on the ground. They don't even hand them their trash bag full of their stuff. So degrading in so many ways. It's just horrifying to think of this existence of being so ground down after an already impossibly hard life to the point where Bull tries to assimilate. And I don't agree with him, but I don't hold it against him based on what they're experiencing. He wants to just give in to British culture and sing stupid pub songs. (laughs) Yeah, immediately. And wear boring, shabby clothes. (laughs) The next really scary moment that isn't really a horror moment is when Rial is trying to get to the doctor and she's lost. And it looks like a labyrinth of streets to her, right? Everything probably looks the same because she's not used to this place. People are not helpful. In fact, they're kind of scary. She's afraid of all the white people she encounters, which isn't a surprise. None of them have been particularly nice to her so far. And then she seeks help from a couple of black kids thinking, oh, they'll be sensitive to my flight, right? She comes up to them and she's speaking in her language and we can tell that these kids are just dickhead teenage boys. They make jokes about her being an auntie that they need to help. And they are kind of fucking around with her. They seem to be giving her conflicting directions on how to get to the doctor. 
they're making fun of her accent. Man, this is so terrible. Her her English is not quite as strong as Bull's English is. And just thinking that you're going to get help from someone and then having them turn that on you or against you is so so mean. Mm-hmm. This is why this is why I have such a hard time with this movie. I feel like there's no grace gift for anyone in this movie. They're just trying so hard and then nothing happens. Although I do love the scene of her at the doctor's office. Oh, I know. Right. So after she has to deal with both racism and nationalism, she gets to the doctor's office finally. And the doctor, again, this woman is Sudanese. Think about what she's likely been going through recently. And just take a minute before you start asking personal questions. I mean, I get that she's a doctor, but she starts talking about this woman's daughter. It's not, where is your daughter? She, you know, she just kind of starts going off about the behavior of daughters in general, as if the two of them can connect over this. And it's so off the mark. (laughs) I love Rial's face in this whole scene because she's so stoic and unimpressed. And it really made me think about how People talk about how like culturally Americans, UK people, Australian people are overly friendly, overly smiley. We talk too much. And the culture clash that that is with everywhere else in the world, (laughs) that is not like Mm -hmm. that. And so then Rial then does get personal where she's like, oh, these scars on, on my body are, you know, not all just decorative and pretty there because there were two warring tribes and I needed to cut them into myself so I could survive and I watched all my friends get butchered because they didn't yeah that's why Rial is the way that she is (laughs) she does not have time for this nurse doctor whatever trying to be friendly without considering her feelings right she doesn't doesn't ask if she's gonna ask I feel like you would want to keep it kind of broad like Oh, what is the meaning behind that? Maybe, but also it's probably best just not to ask. She knows where she's from. Like she knows she should know, have a sense of the kind of suffering she's already been dealing with. And this woman is not looking to make a friend. (laughs) She's looking to just have a checkup. Yeah, that's the thing that kills me with this assimilation tactic that the refugee processing people are trying to push onto them where they're like oh you want to just keep your head down and fit in there's zero effort on the part of any of these british people to try and understand the sudanese refugees who are coming into their community they're just oh you're different and so you either need to get with a program or you need to leave and even if you do get with a program we'd just prefer that you leave the next scary moment i remember from the movie happened maybe like two thirds of the way in. And it's when Bull removes all the exit points from the house because he doesn't want his wife talking to the ghosts, trying to leave, trying to cause problems. And that scared the crap out of me when he started doing that. I was like, ooh, this guy's bad news. Kill him, kill him. (laughs) I know, I know. I just felt like this growing sense of fear over what Bull's paranoia was going to do to him and so much of this movie I'm like I get 
why both of them are the way that they are. And then as soon as Bull kind of tips over into, okay, you're not leaving and you can't talk to anybody. Real, you need to get out of here. You need to tell Mm. somebody what's happening to you. (laughs) Although, I mean, the thing that's really scary though is that even if she could tell someone like the processing agent or someone they would probably just deport her because they'd be like, yeah, well, if you can't live here and you and your husband aren't going to stay together, then one of you just needs to go back to Sudan. And that's just an impossible prospect. You know, we I think in the intro, we see somebody slit their wrists or something. There, there's some struggle going on at the processing center. And what I took that to mean was that he was denied. So maybe he was... Well, I guess it could have been a few things, but I assume my assumption was that he had been denied and was committing suicide or trying to. It's a possibility. He also could have just been reacting to a nightmare or some PTSD. That's frightening to have to consider that if you if you do cause a ruckus or complain or somebody hurts you and you try to get help, that you can have this happen all over to you again. Okay, but the mega scary thing happens at the end of the movie before we get to the house um we'll have to go back to the house but the twist at the end of this movie just broke me it makes my stomach drop when i think about it it's so heart-wrenching so we get the full context of what their escape from sudan looked like which was bowl and rial did not have a daughter. They knew that there was only room on this bus that was leaving for people who had children or families. And so Bull grabs a girl. He just kidnaps her from her mom so that they can get a place on the bus. And that's who they take with them and that's who's on the boat with them and that's who drowns and dies this girl who's just being ripped from her mother and taken from her country I went the whole movie thinking you know it's their daughter it's their daughter it's their daughter that they're having all these flashbacks to and there's a moment where the husband says we can start a family again we can start a new family and that made me lose it I was like, how could you even say that? Like, you guys just got here and your wife just lost her kid. How could you say that? And at the end, when it's revealed that he stole a child from her screaming mother, I wrote down in all caps, wow, okay, so he stole a child. I couldn't believe it. Watching the mother screaming after them, I... I just wanted to cry. It was so sad and so awful. And I, I'm pretty sure the mother died. It seems like she would have gotten shot up back at the the village anyway, but it wasn't right. There's, it just, it wasn't right. Watching this in prep for this episode meant that I knew what the twist was and what was coming. And so it made me realize that every time Bull is having a nightmare or one of these visions, he's hearing screaming in the background he's hearing a woman screaming and the first time I watched it I just thought it was screaming from the massacre in the village or something and then this time I knew it was the mother's screams that he was hearing and it was that that was following him around I mean you guys this is a ghost movie we haven't even gotten to the ghosts (laughs) we haven't even gotten to the ghosts (laughs) (laughs) you know Rael 
tells the girl, well, I'll keep you safe. I'll protect you. And when they're in the water and she's drowning, Bolt is like, come on, we got to go. And he doesn't allow Rael to save the girl, which again, killed me. So they stole this kid, promised to take care of her and just, nope, she drowned anyway. It was all for naught. They did it for themselves. It's unimaginable. I know people have just the worst things happen to them or because of them or around them, and then they continue to live their lives. But there's just some some degrees of tragedy that just feel, I don't know. I was so unable to vocalize how I was feeling about this twist that I just had a stream of, yeah. of unhappy faces in my notes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big sad face. Well, the house is kind of our link between these actually scary things and the ghosts that we eventually do encounter. The house is awful. The house is terrifying in its own right. Just the idea of having to live in it because it's such a mess. It is huge, which they're like, you should be grateful that this is so big. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, but every room is crumbling. (laughs) It just feels like more work Yeah, that they have to put their own meager amount of money into to try and fix up. I said in my notes when the wallpaper started peeling, no more wallpaper, more chores instead. (laughs) That's basically all this life is at this point. This is tenement housing. And I mean, they're just kind of dumped there with their stuff and outside and around it. You can tell it's not a good neighborhood. Everything's kind of shabby and falling apart. There's garbage and furniture and everything outside of all of these houses. And yet the poor white people who live there are still super suspicious of this black family moving in. You live here too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I like that joke that Rial made when uh, she saw the old lady walking down the street. Oh, there's their queen. (laughs) Just this old lady walking to her house in the projects. (laughs) It's like, nice one. (laughs) But yeah, they get in and it's just disgusting. There's rotten food all over the place. There's roaches, garbage, looks like mold everywhere. None of these rooms look like rooms I'd want to be in, let alone sit down in. It gave me the willies when they were sitting on that red couch together. I was like, ah, I wouldn't want to touch it. Nope. There's holes in the wall. The electrical doesn't work. The door literally falls off its hinges when they're being shown the house. And he's so blasé about like, oh, well, there's a hardware shop up the street. You can just pop over and like buy the stuff you need to fix it. And I was like, oh, so they don't eat for the week so they can fix the stuff that you were supposed to fix. Right. They're meal that they put together looks nice though they do have a nice meal on the floor at least and I like to think that they were all fairly cheap ingredients hopefully it was nice that they got a care package from the nearby church I was thinking okay that saved them a good maybe 50 bucks in supplies it was really nice and that was a moment that made me feel good because he's so brusque about asking if they're refugees and then he just gets this absolutely stuffed box yeah I was like oh man what is this man gonna do I know I was like oh you should go join this Methodist church just because they'll actually (laughs) 
maybe give you a little charity. They'll help you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can't invite them over. No friends and no ball games. So the house is the setting. Go. And it feels like hidden in these walls is the evil, the ghostly presence. All of that is in there. And it feels at first like it's all being maybe paranoid or becoming undone and trying to like chase this thing into the walls, destroying it and wrecking it. But it does then turn out that there is some kind of entity that is actually there with them. Yeah. So that brings us to the ghosts. The first ghost we see is actually what you would expect from a ghost movie. We do get to see a literal ghost and it's the ghost of Niagak. Uh, the little girl who drowned, who they stole from her mother. And, ooh, her first appearance made me scream. It made me scream both times I watched this. It's a jump scare. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. The ghosts in this movie, oh my gosh, this movie is so good. It's hard, but it's so good because the scary stuff with ghostly Nyagak popping up around the house hearing her humming through the walls genuinely terrifying very quite scary very much and again and also for this movie I I do recommend watching it in the dark because because there is so much of this dark house and the lights don't always work and there's a lot of shadows it makes it a, a whole lot scarier to watch even with all the sad topics but the little girl also can interact with him in real life she can put her hands on him she can she jumps on him at one point attacks him with a knife she's not a slow spooky ghost she's like an angry ghost that mask that she wears too so scary it's really cool yeah we have another entity though which is the opeth real tells a story of a villager man who stole from someone that he did not realize was an opeth, which in their culture is a night witch, you know, type of ghost or malevolent entity. And this opeth will pursue you until you repay the debt that you owe them. It went over my head a little bit the first time that we watched it that the opeth was after them for taking a life that wasn't theirs. That line really stood out to me Same. this go around because at first upon viewing it, I thought it was just the Opeth trying to punish them for their daughter dying. But the nuance is that, no, he's punishing them because they killed a daughter that wasn't theirs. And that's the, the debt that they have to repay. And then that's what starts to drive Bull crazy <laughs> is once this entity is really in the mix, that's when his paranoia and everything just ramps for the rest of the movie. There's a really great article that I found from jstor.org. It's where you can browse journals, books, images, no cost. If you sign up for an account, you get 100 free articles a month. And they had a really great older article about the Apeth. And the way it was discussed is it's sort of like a type of eating, like they eat you but not in the cannibalistic sense. It's like they want to wring you out of things that you don't 
deserve or you you have no right to. And I'm really glad I read that article because you're right. It made it all click. And also, what a cool monster for mm-hmm. a movie that never seen before. I like that this was another instance of Rial trying to bring and maintain their culture with them because she sees this and she's like, oh, we have to repay the Apeth. And if we do, we can get Nyagok back. I don't exactly know how that works, but she's very convinced. A big theme of this movie is about belonging, but also being true to one's past. And I got the sense that the Apeth sort of fed on the husband also trying to deny his past and not only his heritage, which, you know, that happened quite a bit throughout the movie, but also he's denying that, hey, that wasn't our daughter. Hey, we stole her. We had no right to do that. He's not acknowledging any of that. And so I kind of got the sense that as he accepted things, as he accepted who he really was and owned what he did, that seemed to take care of the Apeth, maybe pay a debt. The the literal debt that the Apeth was trying to take was slicing into his flesh, right? He was trying to take his life, basically a trade. And I think the strength of Rael is what saved them. You know, she never gave up on her heritage. She fought against that. She wasn't going to let people break her any more than she had already been broken, including this Apeth. She's like, I'm not afraid of a ghost. I've seen what people can do. They're much worse. I know. Rial's the real hero in this movie because she kills the Apeth. She's given this fantasy. Maybe it wouldn't have been real of being able to stay with Nyagok in exchange for Bol, but she kills the Apeth instead. Oh my gosh, the end of the movie when Matt Smith comes back and they're like, oh, don't worry. We killed the Witch King. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he just laughs like, okay. The other big ghost, I noted this as a ghost, was basically just PTSD. I mean, it mm-hmm. it haunts this family. It haunts especially Bowl. I think because he's denying what he did, he feels so guilty about it, so much more guilty about it in that way. But you do see and hear, like you said, screams, and he has nightmares and visions about what happened to them. The nightmares are really surreal and very scary. It's a lot of mixed imagery of being in shallow water representative of the channel that they were crossing and seeing all of those that died around them with the Apeth there too and Niagak. It's yeah very dreamlike very nightmarish and the imagery is really good. I really love the red water. It's like blood of course. Yeah him floating away while he's trying to eat with utensils. It's really funny. I It's so funny how she says it tastes like metal. Like all I can taste is metal. And I was thinking about that and I was like, oh man, I've just gotten so used to that. I don't think about that when I'm eating. But the first time, and even still, if I'm using wooden chopsticks from a just the freebie chopsticks they'll give you, I do taste the wood. Like I notice the wood taste. And I'm not sure if that's similar to this or or not, but that was kind of funny to hear them say. I liked how with Rial's PTSD that we get resolution on some more of her trauma. So much of the movie focuses on her 
wearing Niagok's necklace, taking care of the doll that she had. But we get moments where it's really quick flashes of what looks like real hiding. And then later we learn that it's because that's how she survived the massacre that killed all of the people she knew in their town was she hid. It's just so many layers of trauma that these poor people have been through. And losing Nyagok is just one of the more recent traumas, but maybe not even necessarily the biggest trauma for Rial. So a lot of maybe survivor's guilt that she has around how she was able to escape when so many others weren't. This is a good movie that delves into gray areas within the human psyche. We are good people is one of the first things that Ball says to the processing agents. It comes up a lot, that phrase, just be good, one of the good ones, these types of statements. And the more we see in this movie, the grayer this designation becomes. Who is a good person? Who's a good person in this movie? Are the processing agents good? Is Ball good? What is a good person? (laughs) You know, that question kept running through my mind the entire movie. And the first time I watched it through, I really did not like Ball. But rewatching it made me so much more sympathetic towards what he's going through and, and why he was behaving the way he was behaving and why he stole the daughter. It feels like they're taking for Ball a very individualistic approach to what goodness is. Goodness is they were not participants in the war. They were victims of the war. And they were just doing what they needed to do to survive. That's not everyone's definition of good. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. if, I mean, there's a utilitarian, we're going to do what's best for the most number of people, which kind of feels like what the processing agents are like, where they're like, well, if we have really meager resources and we're going to try and give houses to as many of these asylum seekers as possible, they're not going to be good houses. <laughs> they're going to be the cheapest, worst houses, but we can maybe give them more houses that way to more people rather than giving one nice house to one family a month, a year, whatever that right. looks like. But when you get into specifics of it, I mean, looking at it from a macro level, you're like, Sure, I guess that makes sense. But then when you see what it looks like in practice, this isn't the government looking out for people. This isn't the government being good or empathetic. They're just doing the bare minimum. And the bare minimum isn't enough for people. So I appreciate how, yeah, morally gray it presents it because it's very real. And that's probably also why this movie is so hard to watch is just because of how in the trenches real it is it's authentic and I think trying to be a good person or trying to be the person you want to be or impress others with your goodness is something we all kind of contend with and so it's very relatable even though the reasoning for why these people are here isn't necessarily the desire to want to be accepted and to be a good person but it not really being that cut and dry is a very real feeling or emotion or trial that we all go through. Did you feel like there was one person or set of people or anyone in this movie who was more good than anyone else? I felt that Rael was probably, if I had to rank everybody, she seems the most good 
What makes her a little morally gray is probably the fact that she also took advantage of the stolen child. She did try to help her once it had happened, but she didn't stop her husband. She wasn't going to pass that up, that entrance fee to the bus. But in general, I thought she was probably the most good because she also stayed true to who she was on top of it. All things that, given enough context, you can sympathize with why someone would make the choices that they did, but still so hard, <laughs> so hard to to get behind any of this circumstance. Well, Kate, it was a tough watch, but do you recommend it anyway? What do you think? I do. I do recommend this one. I think that it is incredibly well-written. This movie won a number of awards at various independent film festivals for directing, for acting, for writing, for production, for special effects. There's a lot of accolades out there for very good reason. The social aspect is scary and hard and tough and the horror just layers onto it really beautifully it doesn't take away from the rest of it they complement each other that is such a Mm -hmm. hard balance to strike that I think it's worth I think like non-horror fans should watch this movie I think that it's worth it even if it's a if it's a one-time watch for people if I had had my way this might have been a one-time watch for me (laughs) But I think that we did owe it to yeah, people. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's so good. It's so good. But I'm I'm really glad that we did an episode on it because we don't often get the chance to dive into a movie that's this deep, this good, and genuinely this scary. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think you summed it up quite nicely and said everything I was thinking about this one. I I recommend you watch it probably just once. And it's a a great watch also for empathizing with asylum seekers, immigrants, people of color. It's it's a great film for that realm as well. Well, that wraps it up for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Next week, it's Father's Day weekend. And what better way to celebrate? <laughs> because I like this movie and so does my dad. By watching The Thing. It's the 41st anniversary of The Thing in which we talk about the 40th anniversary Fathom event and we hope to catch you next time. This was Not Quite Dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Not Quite Dead Podcast and on Twitter at NQD underscore podcast. Follow our blog for bonus content at notquitedeadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And happy watching.